After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeHereNow. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. Okay, well, greetings, everybody. This is the CSM podcast, David Nickturn. I have a very, very special guest today. Um, Special needs. Yeah, uh, it's a young guy, but he used to follow me around all the time, all over the place. And, um, you know, I finally figured out what the, the basis of that was. So this is my son, Ethan. Ethan Nickturn, everybody. And um, welcome, Ethan. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, I, I am definitely your, your neediest guest of all time. <laughs> <laughs> if you gauged it out over the last 41 years, I've definitely, yeah, I've, I've definitely demanded more of you than any of your other guests. Yeah. So. Well, you've given more too, Ethan. <laughs> so the... Um, uh, the irony of this is that both Ethan and I are um, kind of in the same uh, realm as uh, perpetuating and propagating Buddhist teachings in various contexts and working with people on, on that. And um, also, we Ethan has a podcast on this same um, Be Here Now network. So sometimes I'm on his podcast, sometimes he's on mine. But right now, especially, uh, it it. it occurred to me that it would be a great time to talk to Ethan because everybody's always asking me, well, what does Ethan think about this? What does he think about that? He's got a kind of um, 
a, quite a potent little influence out in the world there of people, um, you know, buying stocks that he's in favor of and changing their opinions about political candidates that they used to like and, and, and all the rest of it. So I thought I'll just ask Ethan directly and just put it right out there. Um, and um, so we're going to sort of talk about pretty much everything today. So let's start. Um, let's start with Ethan. What do you think is going on? <laughs> like, let, let's start small, huh? Let's start with the little picture. What is going on? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's uh, at least the last four years, I would say. I actually just got a tweet um, from someone I know who's kind of a cool, engaged Buddhist in Durham, North Carolina. And she tweeted at me, four years ago this weekend, I did a meditation retreat that you taught in North Carolina. And I was just thinking of like four, so that would be spring of 2016, um, you know, the sort of gearing up and ramping up of that uh, election season. And and I would say it's interesting because I would say that period, like the last four years, uh, feel like cosmically crazy to me. Like like mm. a lot of, um, I mean, I, I don't think we can understate how weird it is who's the president right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, harmful, yes, but just like Back to the Future 2 was a movie where Biff, they go back to an alternate 1985 and Biff Tannen has gambled his way into being the Lord of everything. And they specifically said that the character was made after Donald Trump. So this is weirder than the plot line of Back to the Future 2. And we're now three and a half years into that weirdness. So like, I I never heard that before. That's like, what a perfect metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. And it does feel like we've sort of jumped, you know, a timeline and then everything that's happened since, you know, uh, what's happened, what happened in the Shambhala community in 2018. Um, now coronavirus, something very cosmic or cosmological, some kind of ripening gravitational transition that's bigger than us seems to be happening. And when you, when you try to wrap your mind around it, does it feel like something that's, let me give you a couple of multiple choice benevolent. Is there some kind of benevolence to it or, is it ominous? Is it dark? Yeah. Um, is it intelligent? You know, what, what would you, how would you characterize it? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I have been thinking about this a lot that there's, you know, as Buddhists, as, as Mahayana and tantric Buddhists, like there's basically two problematic ways to narrate your experience. And they're, you know, 17 million different subsets of each and they weave together. But one is to be basically overly eternalistic or to claim something solid and positive, you know, and, and cheerful <laughs> at the center <laughs> of everything, like, like some benevolent deity or just fate or destiny or some to, to kind of move your, your storytelling about the experience and like, that sort of like it's a, it's all good you know we're, we're all one you know that that sort of be, because it feels like it's a, actually evasive of the mm-hmm. moment and then i would say so that's eternalism to be clear right that's eternalism and right, okay. i would say that's the better of the two just because it at least gives you a little energy to show up to the moment mm-hmm. the much more common one 
which also has 17 million different subsets, is nihilism, a kind of cynical narration of like, we're fucked, the universe is fucked, you know, people are originally sinful, you know, uh, humanity is broken, it was always going to be this way, it's never going to get any better, everybody's corrupt, you know, and... Um, and the end of the species, which some people are yes, talking about. Yes, yes, and there's an apocalypse. Homo sapiens is extinction event. Right. right yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so, and... Um, not that, that either of these has some intelligence to it. The cynical usually narrative usually picks up a lot of um, uh, um, uh, the cynical narrative usually picks up a lot of clear criticism about what's going on now, or it, it knows how to put the overly optimistic in its place. You know, it kind of gives it a little needed smack in the face and says, kind of pay attention to what's actually happening. Mm. But either of those is problematic because it claims a kind of direction to experience in the universe that's that's basically just about the person who's narrating feeling more solid, right? More like I know what if everything is fucked, then I know what's happening. If mm-hmm. if there's a benevolent God, then I know what's happening, you know. And we're really trying to hold the space of returning to a basic state of not knowing. And mm. but, di- but discerning within that space, discerning within not knowing. There's a good one. So we can we can talk in terms of like it looks like this thread or this influence is coming out or that influence is coming out. We can we can say things about relative reality that are like, look at this kind of causal stream or look at this influence and how that's playing out. But I don't know if I believe in a benevolence to the universe. You know, I mean, I think Mahayana Buddhism, I think the Shambhala teachings, they definitely talk about a benevolent awareness that lives in every being that yeah. could be tapped into. And every fiber of every being. And every fiber of Like every at a molecular being. level. Yeah. So I guess that means we, believe, we have a benevolent belief in the universe. Mm-hmm. I definitely think this transition has tremendous opportunity. Mm-hmm. say like that, that, that... I've I've played it out and there is one there is one direction this could go especially with uh coronavirus and I think kind of there's nothing subtle about the belief system that Donald Trump uh inhabits whereas the people who've inhabited that belief system before tend to have a lot more subtlety so mm-hmm. He says the loud parts loud, and I think coronavirus also says the loud parts loud about what really matters, what how our system actually works, like you know uh, what is really should be prioritized in human life, and so and it's happening everywhere simultaneously. You know, we're yeah. having like a a nine eleven sort of event, although it doesn't really have an enemy, so that's new. And and it's happening everywhere, not just in the country, but um, across the planet is being affected in some way. So I think of this time next year or two years from now, like there could be a real, real coming together of humanity. Um, that's that's definitely one possibility because the sort of, you know, the, the think about the source material for, you know, one person kind of getting on the path of awakening or mindfulness is usually heartbreak or one little part of their life or one big part of their life falling apart. Mm. Now, 
that is happening everywhere simultaneously. Yeah. When things period. fall apart, when things fall apart, the yeah. whole thing falls apart. When the whole thing falls. Yeah. So that's that's a that, good new book title. When the whole thing falls apart. Well, call call Pema and tell her that has to be her next yeah. book. Okay. When the whole thing falls. When apart. the whole thing falls apart. So it's interesting because you're uh, framing it with eternalism and, and nihilism as the kind of. Um, you know, these are basic Buddhist teachings that we both probably talk about all the time. Have I haven't found that I've had to go outside of my Buddhist grid to describe what I think is happening in various aspects of the situation. It's not like, oh, God, I didn't think of this, you know. Um, whole planetary systems have come and gone. Civilizations have come and gone. It's all declared as impermanent in the Buddhist view. Individual people come and go. It's impermanent. Um, Within the impermanent realms, we're we're sort of um, training to pay attention, or, as you said, to the kind of precision or the, the 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 sharpness, the acute perceptions within the not knowing. You know, is there anything different about this, and that makes you think, oh man, I I need to invent another yana for this. No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> another well, vehicle. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if if there's anything, uh, I mean, you know. I think we both do what we do because we think Buddhism is great. You know, I, I would say that there's a lot of Western and modern uh, fields of inquiry and study that don't disagree with Buddhism or, or the best parts of what Buddhism says, but make it more robust or give you, you know, like, you know, for example, studying the human nervous system through Mm -hmm. neuroscience or evolutionary biology makes you understand why a lot of Buddhism make sense from a kind of organism standpoint, right? Studying, so it's, beef, it's beefing it up. Yeah, it's beefing it up. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, studying like Western ethics or activism, you know, uh, makes a lot of uh, sense in terms of understanding how Buddhist uh, ethics could be applied to kind of modern social situations, right? Yeah. Studying Western art forms or modern art forms makes Buddhism more interesting in terms of looking at how the mind expresses. Right. So, so I think modern media, they, they add a lot to classic Buddhism, but they're not really changing anything. You know, Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. there is one thing I'd say, you know, and I think this is where the Shambhala teachings are headed and, and, you know, the, the, the really, you know, hopeful and, and, and insightful parts of them were headed there's not a clear theory in classic Buddhism about how social consciousness actually works. Almost all of classic Buddhism is the study of individual consciousness or the Bodhisattva teachings, how individual consciousness could interact with and possibly benefit other individual consciousness. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot in classic Buddhism. It's, It's clear the Buddha and other people like touched on social issues right but but in terms of like how a group of people get together and create a culture or or create social karma or something like that or social awakening the 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 theories of classic buddhism are much more subjective which actually i think is a good thing because it's it's more scientific that way actually Mm -hmm. and but there's there's not a lot of robust discussion in, in classic buddhism about like you know, how an entire political or cultural system would work in terms of the various consciousnesses involved. Sociology, in, in essence. 
Yeah. 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 Well, um, you know, I'm struck lately, as you know, I'm conducting a course with the students I work closely with, and we're looking into Mahamudra teachings, particularly Trangu Rinpoche's, um, you know, Essentials of Mahamudra. And I'm struck by uh, how completely cohesive the most advanced instructions are with the most beginner instructions right now. Yeah. Like there's really kind of no difference. Yeah. You know, and um, I just saw Mingyur Rinpoche on, on, uh, on the internet and he was basically giving, you know, what we would call Dzogchen or Ati instruction style, very open, very relaxed. Um, and, you know, he gave, he gave what's essentially, I'm going to just jump the shark here. And even, even if people are not familiar with this, um, he gave essentially what's a, a Mahamudra style of in meditation instruction. So for those of us out in there who haven't encountered this yet, this is kind of the most, you know, after you study this material, then you're kind of, you've, you're done, you've, you've cooked the Buddhist dinner, cor all the courses, and, and you have the, the view of the most progressed uh, view, which is amazingly close to what happens when you come into it and people are just telling you, pay attention to your breath, you know, be, be, be aware of what's going on. So um, the instruction that he gave, and he just did this um, on, on internet, so I'm going to just also reiterate it, is don't meditate. That's the first instruction. Now, that's shocking to people who come and go like, I just paid $500 for this course on meditation. Now, this Tibetan Lama, who's supposed to be a thousand-year-old lineage, is saying, don't meditate. Okay, I want my money back first. Second, if that, if that instruction stood by itself, it would be very um, quixotic or you know, paradoxical or hard to fathom. But the second piece of it is um, don't wander. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you're not supposed to meditate, but you're also not supposed to mind wander, which is what you do when you're meditating as a beginner. You say, I'm mind wandering. I'm going to come back to paying attention. So you actually do have an exercise. And the third one is don't fabricate anything. Mm -hmm. So those are, you know, as far as I understand, those are from, you know, I think the ninth Karmapa or somebody like that. They're, they're yeah. essential Mahamudra instructions. Now, if you said that to somebody, you're giving them really good meditation instructions. Mm -hmm. Um, would you ever give anybody instruction like that? Sure, sure. I mean, a student. I've heard it in a reversed order: don't meditate, don't fabricate, and don't wander even for an instant. I, yeah. I bet the source material is right. is the same. I, th I think it was the ninth Karmapa, the head of that uh, the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. But um, I mean, con when you're giving simple instructions, context is anything, everything, right? Yeah. So, so that I mean, that that's. That's the idea, but but there is this notion, right? It goes along for me with the story of um, there's this story that um, one of the early ways that Buddhism came to Tibet was that th this sort of ch chest with the teachings fell onto the uh, roof of the palace of the king. Um, this was around the time of Padmasambhava, so this was the first transmission of Buddhism into Tibet, um, and the um, uh, the the teachings were uh, transmitted in this chest in two ways. One was six million four hundred thousand verses, and the other was three lines. <laughs> that says it all. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, I mean, which were the three lines, the, the ones we just said or something? No, like? no, no. I mean, the three lines kind of weren't a meditation instruction. They were a description of the entire path of working with the mind. So the, the, the first was one is introduced to the nature of your mind. Mm. Uh, one decides decisively on this unique state or this way of being, and one proceeds directly with confidence and liberation, more or less, right? So Swaha. the the three lines that strike at the heart. So, mm. um, uh, so yeah, th- those systems uh, of um, uh, Mahamudra and Mahaati, which are the two lineages of um and i like that we're both talking about this and back to the future part two (laughs) same same conversation um those those systems were um you know are considered the most pithy um and direct teachings in tibetan buddhism and you would you could be given to them immediately but there was always an assumption that one was also practicing all of the other uh, maybe not as a daily meditation, but was familiar with all of the teachings on compassion and the teachings yeah. on ethics and, and ha- was studying the different views, et cetera. So, so there's always, I think with any wisdom tradition, there's always a sense of complexity meeting a, a sense of simplicity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think some people's minds are already quite complex. So if somebody actually needed simplicity and just said like, do this, you know, that's, I mean, that's also many of the schools that, that descend from Dogen, my understanding in, in the, uh, Soto and Rinzai, uh, Zen traditions of, of Japan and, and now the Western world have that same sense of, uh, simplicity. You're, you're just introduced to Zazen. Maybe you do koan practice. Maybe you do Shikantaza, which is sort of their version of don't meditate, you know, of Mahamudra practice. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, other robust practices. I, I, I do find though that people a lot of times need to really alongside understanding that that simple view of working with mind and awareness is there and is at the heart of everything. People need uh, methods of compassion. People need methods of working with emotions. Uh, people need uh, self-compassion practices become yeah. really important um, in the modern world. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. Just, I mean, so, so that's the interesting thing is sometimes (laughs) it's always fascinating that in some of, when you look at some of these hierarchical systems of Tibetan Buddhism and other forms of classic Buddhism, it's often this notion that, that the, the teachings on the, the nature of mind are kind of the higher teachings and the teachings on how to generate loving kindness or compassion for self and others are more preparatory, you know, um, I, I don't think it's good to view the different practices that we do as hierarchical. It's more that they're just contextual. Like mm-hmm. what, what is the perp, what is the view and intention of doing each of these practices mm-hmm. and when for each student might it become useful? Yeah. Well said. Um, and I think, you know, in going into these teachings, um, I find myself wanting to emphasize Mahayana more because it's easy to kind of, um, there's a little mind trick that anybody can play, really, of kind of taking a big view, and I'm noticing myself doing it and other friends doing it. Okay, I got the big picture here, but what about the guy down the street? Or what about, you know, what about um, the person whose restaurant just closed? And uh, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, it's all part of, you know, a very large 
tableau, but to to um, move into the specificity of what's happening now and the kind of um, just temporal challenge that it's providing for people mm-hmm. with their everyday lives is you can want to get away from that. And one way to get away is into the big view, mm. you know, the eternal the kind of big picture view. And you, um, uh, you know, as, as contrasted to, you know, a nurse uh, in, in mm. Manhattan right now, you see these people um, going through the ringer of compassion and like, what does compassion really mean? There's a person like can't breathe right there. And there's somebody else out in the hall who that you don't have a ventilator for. Yeah. Um, so you have to be able to put those two together, you know, um, in a in a meaningful way. It's hard to do right now. It's challenging. Who knows who how much energy you have for it all? Have, have you felt at all tired or depleted during this time, or how, how are you feeling energetically? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, my my main experience during this shelter in place is is um, being with uh, my family, and and you know that's been more tiring than usual because you know both my wife and Marissa and I are working from home and. You know, we have a young daughter um, who, who always asks about Nuji. And, uh, <laughs> Grandpa Nuji. <laughs> do, do, people, do, do, do people on your podcast know that you're Nuji? They know that I am Nuji, but they No, 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 have, that's, that's your name. Yeah, they may or may not know that's my nickname, but I suspect by now many people do. Um, the little gathering I'm having is called the Nuji Sangha. Oh, nice. You know? Yeah, so um, Grandpa Nuji, yeah, that's one of my favorite identities. But I see peering over your transom that the intensification for family life and child rearing is, uh, has gone up an order of magnitude, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Cause we don't have help. So, you know, there are long days where, um, you know, going back and forth between sort of trading off the work that we need to do and then, you know, trying to be present for her. It's also, it's also great in that way. Cause you really get down to spending time together and things that matter. Um, certainly, you know, uh, in my own way, definitely uh, trying to be there for others, for uh, students who study with me, for kind of the com- vir- virtual communities that I'm part of. So, yeah, it's been it's been tiring and depleting. It's, um, you know, I also feel, you know, definitely like one of the lucky ones. You know, I'm not uh, out of a job right now. I'm I, I I'm, I'm not a frontline healthcare worker. You know, I. I uh, um, uh, I, I really think we need to re-examine, you know, what what jobs yeah. are valuable in our society, and yes, and indeed, how to uh, help them. But yeah, sure, it's it's tiring. It's also what I've experienced and what I've been working with a lot of people on is uh, just not quite knowing how to feel. So it's a kind of tiredness where you just kind of don't know where you should be putting yourself. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and part of that I think is the basic you know human response that when you do want to generate compassion at a time like this, your 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 basic reaction is if you're generating compassion towards somebody right your mind goes towards them and your body also wants to go towards them as well, and that's the mm-hmm. wrong thing to do. So it's mm-hmm. I think that is uh, fritzing a lot of our brains and it's, right. it's depleting you know and then there's grief you know there's yeah. you know. Um, knowing people at one or two um, uh, orders of of magnitude, uh, you know, and just overhearing, like I don't know anybody directly who's who's died. I mean, I know people in my orbit, but you know, you overhear conversations. I was overhearing uh, my wife talking to uh, a client about some work in Italy, in Milan, and he just kind of casually 
mentioned, yes, my wife's father passed away from the virus and, and just like, and it's like, you know, just receiving that you're like, um, wow. You know, it's, there's just yeah. a lot going on, even, even, even if it doesn't end up being the thing that does our society in, which I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic it won't be. There's still mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah, it's depleting for sure. So yeah. I think part of, part of my practice is just, and I think this is nature of mind when, when body feels depleted, just know body is depleted, you know, yeah. that there's nothing more to do than that other yeah. than rest if you can. Yes. And I think also some of us are experiencing reserves of strength and kind of resourcefulness. I, 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 some people seem quite energized actually that I, that I talk to yeah. almost as if like they are in a retreat and they are having, you know, challenging time working with all of it, but that there's a source of energy that's coming out of it that is uh, almost, you know, propulsive in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been a lot of people's experience too. It's a, it's, it's clarifying, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know a single person who isn't thinking like a lot of the things I used to do kind of have a bullshit, you know, (laughs) grind quality to them and not having to do that. You know, there's, there's some liberation. Yeah. Wow. Well, and then we go into one of the, you know, interesting things about it's generational in some way. I mean, it's interesting. My, my generation was socially and politically active, you know, um, and then this kind of, um, you know, Eastern spirituality jag hit and that, you know, some people kept uh, both threads going. Uh, I would say there was one thread that went a little bit away from the social and political activism, more towards the kind of spiritual, um, you know, potentially spiritual bypassing aspect of developing a lot of, a lot of uh, that kind of training. But you, um, I think, are, you know, um, in a way, you're you and you're smart and you're personally interested and active in terms of the sociopolitical fabric, and you always have been. And, you know, I think, but also I think people are looking for leadership in that zone of how to integrate the spiritual view with the sociopolitical view. So it's just not a bunch of angry you know, lefties storming the castle and now, okay, that's, here's another style of aggression, you know? Right. So the, the blend of the Buddhism and the social activism, I almost think you're, you know, like a kind of, um, you know, a leader and a spokesperson in a way. Can you give us your view without any cynicism at all, with heart, with compassion? A- again, what the hell is going on sociopolitically in our, in our country and around the world? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very multifaceted, so I don't really know. <laughs> but I also think it's important. I mean, I feel it's important as a, I don't as a meditation teacher, as a Buddhist student and teacher. I, I, I never bought the view, and have increasingly not bought the view that one's job is to stay neutral uh, about these things. I, I mean, neutrality is simply not a Buddhist teaching. Like mm-hmm. anybody who says neutral, there's no place that that. Right. even appears as a concept, you know? Right. So um, what I think became increasingly important for me is to demonstrate uh, how I'm thinking through political issues and, and to be vocal and transparent about that rather than to, to like let other people, you know, um, do that or to take this, this view that I think is a false view and says like, again, Buddhism, it, I think there's a, a confusion between neutrality and equanimity uh, usually. And the notion of like, if you're, if you're going to be a spiritual teacher, like stay in your lane and, and don't have any 
interest in the political world because I think non-interest in the political world is a political view. It's actually a conservative political view. It, it mm-hmm. empowers it empowers that which wins when people don't participate. And every single time people don't participate, mm-hmm. conservative views win. I mean, that's just that's that's actually the karmic chain. Well, there's a, there's a profound formulation right there when when uh, you know spiritual practices teach disengagement. Conservative forces have a, a, a seeded victory, and you essentially are contributing to that by by your philosophy of non-attachment or disengagement has become a very active contributor to the victory of certain uh, point of view. Yeah, and and you can claim not to have. You know, you can. Uh-huh. You, that's the other interesting thing right. is you can. Any of us can otherize ourselves from the situation. You know, and and yeah. claim. You know, but but that's a basic Buddhist principle: is that if if you are perceiving a situation, it's not saying that it's your fault, but you are implicated by anything that you perceive. That's that's a basic. Oh, you're um, implicated by anything you perceive. Yeah, write it down, everybody. That's a good one. You're but implicated I mean, by anything you perceive. You're part of it, meaning. That yeah, it's, no, I like it's, it. It's an yeah. it's an interplay between perceiver and perceived, subject and object. It right. does not mean doesn't mean it's your fault you right, know? right like but right. it means that there's there's an actual you are part of the system right? yeah yeah i mean so so none of us can claim a system that we are not part of that's just that would be a basic problematic view from a buddhist standpoint right yes if you're if you're observing a system you are within the system that you're yes observing. yeah so, so there is no real non-attachment if if you propose non-attachment in a way, that's a form of attachment to a sort of negation of attachment, isn't it? Yes. I mean, most of the time when people, and this is where the whole notion of spiritual bypassing came from, most right. of the time, the, the energetic or active quality that most of us actually go for when we use the word non-attachment is, is rejection, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a subtler form of aversion, but Which is really ignorance. non It's ignorance. Yeah. But but real non-attachment, if we're actually looking at that as a positive awakened state, is a flexible mind, you know, a mind that is part of what it's perceiving and interacting with, but can also let things flow and change when they no longer serve, you know. Right. So so non-attachment is a practice of participating. You, you have to actually be participating in a system to even be trying to practice right. what non-attachment actually means. So. So I mean that's that's where my ba- my basic views come from. Now then within that you know we we can we can debate a lot of different things and uh about how democracy should work or what policy choices are the most awakened etc and you know I have evolving views on all of that but part of what I see now is that we can't turn this into like a dualistic or both sides situation because mm-hmm. it's become increasingly clear that one of the major American parties, it's not that they have views that I disagree with. That would be fine. That's what democracy is all about. They do not believe in democracy. The Republican mm-hmm. Party does not want democracy to continue. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, like we talked about it the other day, if you look at the federal government, at least, <clears throat> there's four main bodies that are chosen either directly or indirectly by the people. You have the presidency, right? 
you have the the Senate, you have the House of Representatives, and and then you have the Supreme Court. If you think about that as being the union of the president and then the Senate choosing the members of the Supreme Court, right? But mm-hmm. but the notion is, if you vote for a president, you're also voting for who they might appoint and the Senate too, because uh, Mitch McConnell blocked Barack Obama's choice to the Supreme Court by not even bringing it to a vote. But those two entities, you do have a connection to the Supreme Court. So which of those entities are controlled by the will of the people? The, the presidency lost the popular vote by 3 million, and he still gets to be president. The, the Senate, because every t- state gets two senators, no matter the size, so New York or California gets the same representation as North Dakota, the Senate is also controlled by the, by the uh, loser of the popular vote. W- way more people voted for the Democratic senators than voted for the Republican senators who are there right now. Uh, the Supreme Court is very interesting because a lot of people are mad about Brett Kavanaugh there are actually four members of the Supreme Court, all conservatives, who were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Uh, George W. Bush uh, appointed two after losing the popular vote and maybe losing Florida. That'd be, inter- that'd be interesting to see what the last 20 years would be like if Al Gore had been declared the winner of the 2000 presidential elections. It would yeah, be parallel very- universe. Yeah, back to the future too. We'd be, we'd be in, <laughs> in right. that universe. Right. Um, Probably would have a lot more solar <laughs> power in, oh, in okay. New York City, is my guess. <laughs> um, but so, so Supreme Court uh, is controlled by conservatives, but only one of those conservatives was appointed by a president who actually won the popular vote. So you have the House of Representatives, which is in Democratic hands, which is still pretty heavily gerrymandered. They actually won the popular vote by a lot more than their um, control margin, representation mm-hmm. margin is. So, so at a certain point, you're like, these people cheat to win. They're not trying to win by like, our ideas are more popular because mm-hmm. more people agree with us. So that to me is uh, anti-Dharmic. You can't even have a discussion about what the Buddhist view of, you know, environmentalism or individual freedom or, you know, taxation of the wealthy versus, you know, capitalism until you get people in the room who basically agree that democracy should be the way that we have that discussion. And, and so from the standpoint of not going into a fascist state, I think we have to remove the Republican party and then hopefully 20 years from now, maybe have two other political parties. Maybe it'd be like a centrist uh, Joe Biden-esque party and a more progressive Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez party. And both of those believe everybody should vote automatically, you know, that everybody should have a voice, that the winner should actually represent the people based on ideas. Um, well, so but, my question, Eth, is how idealistic is that? I mean, everything is idealistic until it happens. <laughs> yeah. In other words, uh, you know, one of the things that you could ruminate on and contemplate with what's happening, which so much of what we're experiencing is man-made, you know, human-made. Um, even there are, of course, conspiracy theories that even the virus was hum- made by human beings, you know. So you can take it as far as you want to go with that. A lot of the troubles that we're experiencing are, you know, sourced at the human being level. Um, and, you know, when I, the first podcast I did was with Dan Goleman, 
and you know he he was he he's you know got his good rap on the science of how human beings work and his main concern he said was that human beings are not technically wired to get a broad view of the future and implications karmically of things to come because of the evolutionary quality of the brain that we're survival based you know mm-hmm. um and 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 which is the threat and survival mode and of course, there's a kind of new little twingy thing that's kind of like, oh, maybe we could think this through a little bit, uh, even when you feel personally or emotionally threatened or sociopolitically threatened. But that the other thing, his concern was that the other thing is so strongly wired into us that it will actually uh, be the, could sow the seeds of our own uh, extinction and destruction. And, uh, you know, people are really actually, that I know, uh, who you know, are, are a variety of views about the fact that we are an evolutionary experiment that maybe isn't going to make it right. Um, hom- that homo sapiens is kind of now from that you get the nihilistic thing of like, it's all over. And then you get um, a perspective like from the shaman, like Alberto Violdo and people like that who are saying, yeah, it's the dawn of a new species called hom- homo luminous, um, homo deus, <laughs> which is going to be the birth of the luminous beings, you know, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, you know, the sort of realized, beings with the luminous energy field intact and then the on the other side you get people going yeah it's we're dead you know it's gonna right, there's gonna right. be worms crawling around you know and we'll start yeah, all yeah. over again yeah i mean also from daniel goldman's own own uh research like in his book altered traits with richie davidson you know what you're talking about in terms of like hardwired you're talking about the amygdala right the, the mm-hmm. kind of fear response mm-hmm. and yeah and it is i mean the human brain what i've studied of this from people like Richie Davidson, from a lot of other people, but he and Daniel Goldman are, are clearly at the top of the field in terms of intersecting, you know, Western science and psychology with, with uh, Buddhist thought is um, what they found in altered traits about master meditators, which is, I think people who have meditated for like 12,000 hours in their life right. is this ability. Usually what happens in say, They've also done studies, by the way, uh, that demonstrate that uh, Republicans have bigger amygdala than progressives. Did you? Did you? God, see that? I wouldn't want to let that get out. I mean, that's like. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's uh, on. You can. It's. I mean. I know, but well, that's like that is just like, man, that goes to the root of a lot of things which people have been saying over the years on both sides about you know, oh God, I mean, it's yeah. so it's so deep. Yeah. Um, but so but anyway, there's a uh, real study that had that said that. Yeah 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 yeah. But. Um, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how many times it's been verified or whatever, but it, it, it feels true when you, you know, I, I know what it's like to watch somebody have a fear response and, you know, and, and what that means is that in a typical person is that the prefrontal cortex activity shuts down. That's my mm-hmm. understanding from mm-hmm. the research. Prefrontal cortex is the, let's think this through. Yeah. Let's be grounded. Like, do yeah. I do I really want to burn this bridge? What could I cultivate here? What's the most yeah. logical, you know, what's the best long-term solution, et cetera? The 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 kind of logical planning structured mind. And um so <clears throat> typically in a uh, a person who doesn't have a lot of self-awareness, let's say it that way to make it apolitical, um the amygdala response, like the fear, you know, like comes in. And you go, holy shit, I got to buy all the Purell in the world, right? That's an amygdala response because it's not very logical. You mm-hmm. know, 
it's, it's not going to help you live longer. Even mm-hmm. if you were a billionaire, you would want to buy Purell for every other human being. You'd be mm-hmm. going like, everybody keep your hands really clean because I don't want to die. Right. Yes. So here's right. some Purell. Right. That would be that would be the prefrontal cortex response right. to hoarding. Right. It's like let's make sure everybody else has sanitation so that right. I don't die. Right. Um, it has nothing to do with compassion per se for others. Um, it's just kind of enlightened self-interest. Now, what they found in that study is that master meditators have a much increased ability to keep the prefrontal cortex active during an amygdala response. So the amygdala response, the fear still comes in or the, or the uh, aversion still comes in, but the thinking brain is still kind of running the show, the, the, the clarified thinking brain. Yeah. It's not necessarily a monkey mind thinking brain that we all think of. Yeah. So, so, you know, in terms of extinction, uh, you know, an extinction level event, it would, it would take a lot. I mean, that's the other thing about, about Darwinism is, you know, uh, most of the extinction level events that have happened in Earth's history, my understanding, were from objects from space, you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like what killed off the dinosaurs and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. But the idea that like there's going to be a growing group of people who can actually work with their fear response in a more grounded and sane way, and that's going to be some kind of new um, body of people, like, right. I mean... I, I think we need to be a little bit careful with this because that's also what Adolf Hitler <laughs> thought, that's and right. he actually and he actually used some of the narratives and symbolism from from Himalayan right. thought. You know, a, a lot of people have found like the swastika. Sometimes you look sure. at Tibetan brocades, and there's a inverted yep. swastika on yes, it. Yes, indeed. Like, but that that notion that increased awareness can you know lead to something different. I think that's true, and and the notion that yeah, there might be a really high level of uh humanity that's that's or a uh, uh, dominant uh number of humans might not be able to access that but it I could also, be like a kind of new age arianism you know yeah but that's a little bit of quality of like oh okay the the, the cool people the enlightened the, the, the woke people are gonna waltz through the gateway on this and everybody else is yeah so anybody who has that view i kind of want to ask them more questions it's like what, what's going to happen to the other 8.9 billion people, you know, are they just right. going to like wilt or what, what, you know, and how does well, that work? It's one thing to just say all these things, but it's another thing to really just be on the ground here with it. Right. And also if you were actually from a Buddhist standpoint, a more woke person, you would still want to help those people. Sure. You just wouldn't want them to be in charge of everything, you know? Interesting point. And, and right now we have a situation where they're, uh, that frame of mind, that amygdala, amygdala response of greed of it really is allowed to run the show you know so maybe we should just break the united states into amygdalania and california (laughs) break into two countries well i mean the the governor of california is beginning to talk about california as a nation state you know he is yeah yeah yeah, because they're 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 he california is navigating you know uh, with the absence of a of a functioning federal government that we have right now, is navigating helping other Western states yeah. get the COVID supplies that they need, and yeah. I mean, he might I see what be you mean. Yeah. taking it up a notch in terms of the rhetoric. But yeah. you know, I agree with that. I, he I, was also quite complimentary to to Donald Trump yesterday on you know saying that he was getting things that he needed. Good. So you know, it's good to keep you know keep looking at things and allow for people to evolve th- through all this. Um, do but, you, do you yeah. have do you have animosity towards Donald Trump? 
Well, that's also an interesting thing. And you know, some people have animosity towards the virus itself. Right. Like, you so know, is the virus find, ascension being is another interesting yeah. question. Well, according to my sources, it's both and neither. It's sort of in the gray zone, right. unlike a bacteria, which is, you know, will manifest a lot of the qualities of like trying to survive. And so I've started looking at the virus as kind of, um, I mean, I actually like I could get in trouble for this, but I said, I think it's a spore from the CIA, but not this, the government CIA, but the actual central intelligence agency of the, of the world. It, it has some kind of spore-like thing. It's going out and it's affecting situations so differently. And it's provoking things and it's destroying things. And it just makes you wonder what kind of intelligence is going on behind it. But each individual little piece of the virus, I don't think has a complete sentience to itself. So it's, uh, that, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. And they seem to be kind of more dead than alive already. And that's why it's hard to kill them. Mm. Yeah. So, so it, it is a zombie apocalypse in that. In that. <laughs> it's a, yeah. There's a zombie-like aspect to it. It's kind of, that's, that's fa- fair enough. Um, and um, the virus, so, but what I would say, and I'm, you know, I'm willing to change my perceptions every day in this not knowing zone, is that the virus seems to have some kind of Rorschach quality. What's happening in the world right now is bouncing people back to themselves. Mm-hmm. Just like you in a retreat, you go, oh, this is bad, that's bad. You know, and then you go, well, wait, I'm just sitting here alone. And so I'm generating the whole reality field myself. And it does seem to like magnet, magnify what people were already into. Like if they're angry, they're angrier. If they're sad, they get depressed. If they're kind of proactive, they kind of get going, you know. So um, I think there is a Rorschach quality to it. And I'm not sure what the inherent quality of it is. Do you have any idea? Um. No, I mean, it does make me think, you know, there are more cosmic forces at play. And if there is a benevolence, it's in the, again, getting back to our first topic, like um, there is some benevolence to being able to, you know, see yourself clearly. And I think, but, but that also is what makes me optimistic. That's what makes Mm -hmm. me disagree with um, the notion that we're hardwired, because I also think when things really matter, you know, and you're in touch with things that really matter. Most people's compassion is brought out. Most people's like clear thinking, like what really matters here is brought mm. out. And and that is, you know, I've been talking about this a lot because that, that is also the function of Buddhism is it's, it's a set of uh, spiritual, psychological, philosophical practices and contemplations that get you to what really matters? Like, let's really get into like mm-hmm. birth, you know, <laughs> aging, mm-hmm. sickness, death. Like, what is life really? And how how do you want to show up to that? Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I think things like this are are good for awakening in terms of it really it, it is like a it's like a, a mirror for all of us of like what what really matters. Okay, like, you know, and it's interesting the number of people who don't meditate or like, you know, okay, now you're at home alone with yourself and you can't yeah. move around very much. And yeah. what's your mind doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. The interest in that is clearly picking up. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, demonstrable. You and I both teach online a lot and there's more interest than ever in, in this kind of practices. So this might be a little bit of a kind of um, interesting exercise or not, but y- you know, uh, people, always say, oh, Ethan said this, Ethan said that, you know, and it's like, I, I really think you have a kind of um, a perch, you know, in the, in the world and, and you're, you're, and I do it. Yeah. I say, well, I wonder what Ethan thinks about that, you know, and, and like, or I'll quote you on, on, on something. So 
if you had a chance to say, to address, let's say, I'm going to give you a couple of people and you have a chance to tell them something or give them a consult or an advice, what would you say to Donald Trump, for example? Let's say you met him at tea and he said, Ethan, what do you think about what's going on? And I really want to hear it. Yeah, I, I don't think he's capable of doing that, but but I I um unless I was already like really complimenting him, you know. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But, well, uh, that could be skillful. Otherwise, I think he would I mean <laughs> he, he might say something like he just said to a, a male reporter who asked him a very serious question. He said, "Don't be such a cutie pie." <laughs> so, but um you know, I I, I think I'd just say like I get that your life is a sales pitch, you know, and, um, and it's okay. You know, like, like, I don't know. I guess I would just want him to feel like he's good enough Uh and, and then remove him from power. Okay. So there's nothing you would say to Donald Trump is what it's, I mean, I mean, my analysis and my mind keeps going to the, the elements that brought Donald Trump into being, that are kind of complicit or interdependently, you know, nobody empowers themselves. Right. And Donald Okay, Trump, so what do you want to say to those people? Donald Trump feels fairly cut off from Okay. So it's hard, hard he's hard to talk to. Yeah. I mean the the first group of people I want to talk to since I know a few of them and I feel like they're right. and this one's hard but is mainstream journalists and ah, and, okay. and and the owners of mainstream media companies. Um Can you give an example of somebody uh, sure, like a New York Times reporter or somebody who works at okay. CNN. Not not a Fox News reporter, okay. but just um, you know, just to say, like, look, I understand how media works right now. That you need to maximize advertising, and and, and to do that, you need to keep his narrative alive, even if you disagree with his actions personally. But you could find another way. You 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 could not. Uh, you could not make the stories about the things that he says that are clearly lies. You know, the, uh-huh. the, he's, in, he's br- brought us all into a reality TV realm. Right. And it wouldn't have worked unless we were willing to go there and thought that that was the, the best way, you know? Right. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just like, there, there's a lot of, of problems with American mainstream media and he, calls it fake news a lot. So I'm not going to go there because they're, you know, New York times or CNN, they're not fake news. They report right. on things that do happen. It's just, they always feel like they need to narrate what's happening from his perspective as well, uh-huh. which means they just quote a lie and, yeah. and he knows they're going to do that. Right. And so I would just say, you don't have to do that. We, we can find another way to support journalism. You know? What would you say to Joe Biden? Um, that I re- really wish you had endorsed someone else, someone else, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to vote for you. Uh huh. Well, but he's, let's say going forward, what would you say to him? Um, now that this is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like it's most important to to work on other things like like where a group of meditators is getting together, which anyone can uh-huh. participate in. We're calling ourselves Dharma Vote to work on Senate races and swing states and things like that. So um, uh, what I would say to Joe Biden is you have to win. If you're if you're going to be the if you're not dropping out, you have to win right. and you have to be sure you're going to win. 
and you have to make sure that happens. And you have to use every inch of your um, work to empower other people, to empower the next generation. Please. That's yeah. what I would say. To that's good. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think of, you know, these people are people like us. We don't know them. Some people do know them. I've often heard that people uh, sometimes are in very powerful positions when you talk to them one-to-one or individually, they have a much more mellow kind of aspect and it's very For hard sure. being in the public world. Um, sure. But, but, um, and what, what, let me, let me ask this, Eth, what, what are you telling your students and your, your meditation people? What are you telling them to practice more? Are you telling them to uh, watch their mind in any particular way? What, what advice are you giving to people? I mean, it, it really, it really depends. Um, uh, a lot of people are working with a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that, the two things I've found very useful in terms of meditation, working with anxiety. One is sometimes you need to do mindful activities that aren't meditation like yoga or, you know, Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to find other ways to, to be with yourself and that's right. actually okay. Um, and you could just meditate for a short period of time. The other thing is I think it's really important to feel supported. So I encourage people to, you know, think of their benefactors, mentors, lineage, uh, bodhisattvas, et cetera, and um, uh, really invite them visually into the meditation space so that people feel supported in their practice. And, you know, if you're able to do lots of compassion meditation for yourself mm-hmm. and, and for others, um, but, uh, and also get involved. You know, I think that's the other piece of this is a lot of the a- anxiety is a feeling of powerlessness and just doing little things, uh, I think, can actually help you feel like you are part of this world, you know, and are making it better in some small way, you know, and, and maybe helping it evolve into homo luminous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, as opposed to seeing that as a kind of, uh, separatable victory from the whole situation. Um, you know, it's, it's so great to, to, um, to, to let people know that this is just, kind of like a normal conversation between you and me and that this is what we, of course, along with family stuff and ordinary things that we are, it's, for me, it's unusual. I only have one son, you know, Charlie Chan had number one son, which meant he had number two sons, number three sons, but I have number one. It's kind of an awful parenting tactic, right? (laughs) It is. It's my number one son. Okay. (laughs) What what am I? Chopped liver, you know, but um, you know, that we have that obviously that wonderful family relationship, but we, really do at, go at the Dharma punching bag and, and take some swings at it and see what we can come up with. And um, it's, you know, I, I, I think of you as somebody who's really engaging very actively in the world that you're living in. And so um, I'm proud of that and I'm happy about that and um, inspired by that. And, you know, the, the one thing I wanted to just sort of throw out and see if it sticks is from the Tranga Rinpoche, um, daily Mahamudra and thinking of this to our friends out in the world as to how to maybe proceed in a time like this or any other time. He says, the fundament, fundamental requirement of Mahamudra is to preserve mindfulness and alertness at all times, both in formal meditation practice and in post-meditation. Mindfulness is the faculty of not forgetting what to do and what not to do. Mm. Alertness is the awareness that knows what is occurring. 
If mindfulness is lost, you will also lose alertness. And then it is no longer meditation. And then followed up by a famous quote from our, our ancestral teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, that I'm sure you've heard before, the everyday practice. Oops, where did that go? Oops. <laughs> it actually switched me to another quote. The bad news is you're falling through the air. <laughs> Nothing to hang on to, no parachute. The good news is there's no ground. So maybe maybe that was meant. That's so funny. That just popped out of nowhere, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and you know, I want to just encourage folks out there to check out Ethan's um, offerings because they're 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 plentiful. And uh, we'll have a li- we'll have a link on on our on our page to to your um, website and your page and your your books are are, are wonderful. And you've got you've got teacher training programs going on and training programs going on of all kinds, and you're seeing people one to one, and um, you know I feel like very very happy Ethan, that you're um, you know uh, we're sort of somehow ended up on a similar jag on the same airplane, whatever you want to call it. And thank you so much for the work you're doing with people and for for uh, being such a great dad and and a great friend to me. Uh, well. Th- dad thank you for being such a great dad to me also and and you, and i'm actually speaking for myself in that one <laughs> so, there you go <laughs> you're speaking for izzy um so uh yeah it's it's great to be on your your podcast and um i i also want to encourage people to, to read your new book because i think it's uh uh really needed creativity spirituality and making a buck or right livelihood um and uh and I think there's a lot of creative people right now who are trying to figure out how to um, find that next idea for whatever the world looks like coming next in a way that's both creative and meaningful and benefits others. So I, I know a lot of friends who've gotten a lot out of out of reading how you brought those three things together in your in your life and teaching. So thanks, Ethan. And um, of course, we'll talk soon. Uh, why, don't, why don't you hold on for a minute? I'm just going to stop the recording and and. Um, um, wish everybody well out there and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be seeing you all um, in, in the virtual realms okay bye 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 this show is sponsored by BetterHelp What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.